Welcome to What Makes You Tick by Lane Beachley, seven times world surfing champion. Lane loves to get inside the mind of champions and you're going to find out everything about them, including their motivation, their health and wellness habits, and so much more. Exclusively brought to you by Inner Origin, your ultimate online wellness marketplace. Welcome to What Makes You Tick. Today's guest, is naturopath, nutritionist, medical herbalist, best-selling author and speaker, Helen, Helen, gosh, can't even get your first name right, <laughs> Helen Batterin. Now, you hold a bachelor degree in naturopathy, advanced diplomas in nutrition, herbal medicine and massage. You've completed extensive postgraduate training and treatment for metabolic, neurologic, digestive and immune disorders including ASD, ADHD, depression, anxiety and chronic fatigue syndrome and I would love to talk to you a little bit about that because I've had chronic fatigue twice because mm. I didn't learn from it the first mm. time. Um, a woman who's very passionate about conscious living, real food, vital health and empowering individual families and organisations to find the joy in being well. Your mission is to educate and promote awareness about a truly nourishing diet and lifestyle for everyone. And your passion also extends to fermented foods, traditionally prepared whole foods that are free from damaging and unnecessary additives. And if you subscribe to her newsletter, you can receive a free poop chart. Welcome to What Makes You Tick, Helen. Thanks Thank, for making the time. Thank you, Lane. It's a pleasure and an honour to be here. Oh, we really appreciate your support. So we are all about transparency. And mm. if there's one thing that you can share with us that you haven't shared publicly before, what is that one thing? Oh, gosh, one thing that I, I haven't shared. That's a, that's a big question to kick off with <laughs> <laughs> about my personal or professional life. <laughs> Whatever you would like to share with oh, the audience. Goodness, one thing. I'm, I'm, I'm coming up with a uh, block here. Which is ironic okay. because I'm sure there is a lot. I know there's a lot of stuff. So what's one thing? I don't know. Like I guess at the moment I keep my a lot of my relationship side of life, you know, on the down low. It's not in the public eye. But uh, I am very fortunate to be in a really beautiful relationship at the moment and I feel very lucky to be in a relationship with a beautiful man who really sees all of me warts and all the shadows and the lights and beautifully holds space for me to get vulnerable so that you know I, I for me that's a huge value of mine because I think that's where we're able to shed a lot of shame. So, yeah, I'm very mm. grateful for that. Well, beautiful. It's where our power resides. That's right. So that is, a great, that is a great segue in regards to relationships because you are an expert on gut health and you talk a lot about the relationship between the gut and the brain, the mm. brain being the first brain and the gut being the second brain. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about a little bit more about that concept? Please? Mm, yeah, so sometimes uh, we actually talk about it being the other way around in terms of the gut is actually the bigger brain, the first brain, because we have more neurons or more brain cells in our gut than we do in our head. So there's a real physiological basis behind that, uh, behind the saying of, you know, trust your gut feeling and gut instincts and that kind of thing. It's not just a, a whimsical statement. It's uh, very well grounded in physiology. And so we do actually have a lot of messaging that goes on between those two brains in the gut and in the head. Um, but it doesn't just happen via the nervous system either we have an incredible communication network that involves nerves particularly the vagus nerve which is uh, so vagus means the wandering nerve and that's a big nerve that goes from your brain and down to your enteric nervous system so then the nervous system of your gut and your the organs of your abdominal cavity and so we communicate both ways. It's a two-way street um, via that nerve. But we also communicate via chemical messengers like neurotransmitters. A lot of people don't realize that neurotransmitters, which for those who do know, they're brain chemicals. 
and they're often just thought of as brain messenger chemicals, but we actually use neurotransmitters in the gut too. Um, and there's communication via those neurotransmitters too um, from the gut to the brain and, and vice versa. So things like serotonin, for example, we actually have 95% of that actually produced in the gut and only 5% of that is in the brain. Um, then we have hormones that uh, provide a messaging system as well. We have immune molecules like cytokines that um, provide a messaging system back and forth. And we also have microbes, uh, so bacteria, yeasts, viruses, fungi, all the marvellous, wild, wonderful things that live in us and on us, and a huge proportion of those in our large intestine. And they um, communicate with our brain as well in a number of ways. So they communicate via stimulating nerve conduction, nerve messages, but they also produce uh, things, uh, byproducts. So some of them are beneficial byproducts and some of them we refer to as endotoxins. And either way, whether they're good, bad or otherwise, they actually have an impact on our brain function as well because they get into the bloodstream and a lot of them can cross the blood-brain barrier and then it affects neurological function for better or worse depending what's growing. Okay. <laughs> so that's the beginning. Wow. <laughs> there, is, there is more yeah. though because another thing that um, people are becoming more aware of but a lot of people still don't realise how intimately intertwines the relationship between the gut, the immune system and the brain is. So... For example, if we, we just spoke about how there's more neurons, more brain cells in the gut than there are in the brain, but we can take that a step further and, and bring the immune system into this as well. And when we do that, we see that there is more than 80% of the immune system is actually in the lining of the gut wall. So most of our immune system is in the gut wall because this is a major point of entry of both nutrients and potential toxins into the body. So there's heaps of defense uh, systems there. And then in the brain, we actually have more immune cells in the brain than brain cells. So what happens with our immune system in our gut actually affects how those immune cells in our brain respond and that then affects our neurological function. So one of the clearest examples of this is in children with ADHD, for example. If anybody out there listening uh, knows any child or adult for that matter with ADHD, you'll notice most of them will either have allergies and or asthma and or eczema, something immune going on. And it's that hyperactivity of the immune system that can then agitate those neurons and affect our behavior, our ability to be able to concentrate and focus, and also our moods as well. So how can we boost our immune cells in our brain? Well, it's not so much a matter of boosting the immune cells in our brain, but we want to regulate our immune system so that we're not in this overactive or inflammatory response. Um, and really the thing that regulates our immune system more than anything is the microbes that are in our gut, okay? And so this is the area of study of the human microbiome. So the microbiome is the collection of all the microbes that live in us and on us. And just to give you a little bit of an idea of just how significant this uh, microbiome is, we're actually outnumbered 10 to 1 by bugs. So there's more bugs living in us and on us, 10 times as many of them as there are human cells in the body. And Wow. Yeah. <laughs> in addition to that, we as humans often think that we're quite complex creatures, but genetically speaking, we're quite simple, especially compared to bacteria. And if we look at the um, genetic uh, content of our bodies, there's bacteria are a lot more genetically complex than we are. So there's a hundred times more microbial genetic material in us and on us as there are human genes. Okay. So this mm -hmm. is really important because their genetic material interacts with our genetic material and that it, it 
it affects how our genes express themselves, okay? So if we have a lot of beneficial microbes and we're in good balance and we've got this state called symbiosis where everybody's getting along, um, then both the microbe and the host, you, benefit. But if that is out of balance and there's overgrowths of some opportunistic bacteria or yeast or something like that, then that can negatively affect how our genes express themselves and that's when we're going to be more prone to disease. Um, and depending what's overgrowing and undergrowing, it also causes dysregulation of our immune system. So depending what um, pattern of overgrowth or undergrowth in the gut is going on, you could end up with things like either um, increased risk of autoimmune diseases or asthma, allergies, eczema, or recurrent infections, uh, depending on kind of what slants your immune response goes down. So it's really... And are there simple, yeah, sorry. sorry. Um, are there simple ways to detect whether we're in or out of balance? How, how, how's the best way to go about that? Yeah, so there's a couple ways to go about that. Um, one is to have a general idea and the other is getting specific. So starting with a general idea, you can pretty much put money on the table that if you do have an autoimmune condition, if you do have asthma, eczema or allergies, um, if you do get recurrent infections, if you have chronic um, loose stools or diarrhea or constipation or IBS or um, inflammatory bowel disease, anything like that, then I'd put money on the table that your gut microbiome is out of whack. So then if you want to do something about it, the best way is actually to get that tested. So there's a few labs, a couple labs in Australia, uh, Bioscreen and Microba, and they do a fantastic job of looking at, you know, measuring what is actually in your poo. So it's a stool test and, um, yeah, they will determine what species are there that should be, which ones shouldn't be there, and um, at what levels are they. So it's not looking so much for an infection. It's looking for undergrowths and overgrowths. And in the event that they detect serious overgrowth, um, you know, most people believe that I think the best way to deal with, to address or improve their gut health is to simply purchase a probiotic and mm. think that that's good enough. Mm. Uh, yeah, that obviously is not the case, is it? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, with probiotics too, um, sometimes, you know, if you've been taking antibiotics and you can get a broad multi-strain probiotic and have fermented foods and things like that um, to help repopulate your gut with the good bacteria. However, if you're dealing with a specific condition and, you know, it's quite chronic or severe, it definitely does pay to get a stool test done. Because even uh, the bacteria that are in probiotics, there's only about 14 strains of bacteria that are approved in probiotics in Australia um, and not too dissimilar around the world. It, even if there's only a couple dozen, you know, we're, we're host to thousands of different species, right? So to only mm. have access to supplement, you know, 14 or 20 or 24 of those doesn't really touch the surface in many ways. Um, and the other thing is, is that you can have overgrowths of those bacteria like lactobacillus or bifidobacteria, which are in, you know, 99% of the uh, probiotics that are on the market. So for people who have overgrowths of that bacteria, either of those bacteria, they could potentially take a probiotic containing that and at worst not feel any better um, sorry, at best not feel any better and at worst actually could exacerbate their um, condition. So, yeah, if there is chronic or severe condition going on, it does pay to get the stool test done so that you can actually target your approach a lot better. And it's not just about um, getting probiotics in either. So I really I talk about this a lot in terms of real estate and I've spoken about this um, I'm pretty sure with Sally Ann before and uh, what we are essentially trying to do is improve the real estate so what I'm talking about here is this theory called terrain theory uh, are you aware of terrain theory yourself Lane? 
No, no, I'm not. Please explain. Yeah, so there's two theories around microbes, right? One is germ theory and the other is terrain theory. Now, germ theory is the one that was popularised and most widely adopted and the one that, you know, a lot of modern medicine is based upon. And that was developed by a scientist um, called Pasteur. So people are aware of the term pasteurization that came from this guy. And he is responsible for the commercialization of beer, for example. Um, but he and a colleague, Beauchamp, they were always at head to head with each other. Um, disagreeing on their theories around germs. So there was germ theory with uh, Louis Pasteur and then there was terrain theory, which is what um, Beauchamp was developing. So germ theory says that, you know, if anybody is exposed to a pathogenic germ, they will get an infection. Uh, Whereas terrain theory states that It's about the terrain and diseased or damaged terrain, so cells, the health of your body, uh, that will determine whether you play host or not to a pathogenic bacteria, okay? So it more accurately describes how you can have a dozen people exposed to a person with an infection and some of them might get sick and some of them don't. So if germ theory was true through and through, 100% of those people who are exposed to the pathogen would get sick, right, because it's the germ Mm -hmm. that causes the disease. So why is it then that some people don't get it? And this is where terrain theory really comes in, and it's saying the better quality, the better state that your terrain is in, the more resilient you are, excuse me, and the less likely you are going to take on any pathogenic microbes. So when we're talking about terrain, we start, um, well, I start talking about real estate. So if you imagine, as I mentioned before, we're playing host to all of these microbes, right? And it's really important which ones we're playing host to. They're so important now that this microbiome is being considered another organ of the human body because without them, we'd simply be dead. And with the wrong ones, because they carry out so many functions for us, any multitude of things can go wrong. So for example, a few things that they carry out for us is immune regulation, hormone metabolism, cholesterol metabolism, neurotransmitter production, and a whole lot more that are hugely involved in digestion as well. So we really want to make sure we're playing host to the right guys. Now, if you think about real estate, if you've got a rental property that is a bit run down, it's grubby, it, you know, the paint's peeling off the walls, the door handles are coming off, the stove doesn't work properly, then you're probably not going to manage to get very good tenants in, right? You're going to get the riffraff in and chances, yeah. Yeah, chances are they'll probably damage your property even more, right? Because there's not that degree of respect there. And mm-hmm. so once they leave, you're, less, you're left with um, in a worse state. On the other hand, you get those tenants out, you sand down the walls, you give it a good lick of paint, you fix the door handles, you get a new stove in, everything is looking beautiful, you've got some nice fresh furniture. Next thing, you're able to get in some really great tenants who actually take a lot of care and pride in the property and look after it and may actually leave it in a better state than what they left it in. And so this is really what we're wanting to do with our body and our microbiome. We want to do renovations and clear the slate, so to speak, so that we can attract and play host to really beneficial bacteria who are going to help support our health. So that's kind of the guts of it, so to speak, no pun intended. (laughs) And there's (laughs) there's a few ways in which we go about that. So, you know, the basic... I was about to say, what's what's one of the ways that we... How can we incorporate DIY renovations? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost is food, right? So food is the foundation and we need to make sure that we're eating food that's biologically appropriate for us as humans in this day and age. And um, essentially what that means is not having processed food, having a lot of good quality um, 
vegetables, well-sourced meats and really good quality fats, yeah? Um, Not having Mm -hmm. too much sugar, too much carbs, too much processed um, carbohydrates in particular. We're at this time in society now where due to modern agriculture, A, we've got food at our fingertips 24-7 and B, a lot of that food is processed or rather could be called food-like substances rather than food. And um, as well as that, you know, up to in Australia and New Zealand, usually, and I'd say the states would be similar, if not maybe a bit worse, 55% of the plate tends to be really simple or processed carbohydrates. So could be, (coughs) excuse me, pasta, bread, rice, um, things like that. And when rice? Rice, okay. Um, I, well, it depends on the person and the state of their health, right? So um, yeah. if, if there are parasite infections or yeast overgrowths or, you know, strep overgrowths in the gut, they love carbohydrates, right? They just have a party. They have a festival and they really yeah. flourish. So if you are dealing with dysbiosis, you actually do better on a lower carb diet. So dysbiosis is the term that's given to the imbalance of good bacteria and bad bacteria in the gut excuse me i'm just going to have a sip of tea (coughs) Mm -hmm. yeah so um we want to make sure that we've got the food source there to support the growth of beneficial bacteria then we also um, can look at using herbs and uh, enzymes to help to kill off some of the overgrowths And then we want to use uh, probiotics judiciously to help support the growth of the good guys. So in a nutshell, that's it. But there are other things that you can do in your lifestyle as well. And one of the most important ones is spending time in nature and getting dirty because that's where we get an abundance of probiotics. So whether it's at the beach, in the ocean, in the bush, whatever it is, that's where we get an abundance of probiotics. So I really recommend that everybody does that as much as possible. So those mud pies we ate as a kid were yeah, actually really brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah, so long as the, the mud in the lawn wasn't sprayed with glyphosate, yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously you're incredibly well-informed and well-educated around all of this. What led you to this point? What led you to this journey of of gut health and brain health and being so educated in this world? Yeah, well, I guess a lot of it was my own experience with my um, with my health status growing up. So, what was that? Yeah, started from the get go. Really, I was almost born three months too early. So, um, my mum was given Ventolin to stop the labour which was great because it saved my life, but at the same time that has ramifications. So um, it no doubt affected her microbiome and mine as a result and has impacted my immune system throughout my life. So in I think pretty much when I from about six months old, you know, I was covered in eczema, I had asthma from 18 months I had allergies, so when I was a kid, I just need to touch an egg white, and I'd come out in hives from head to toe. Um, I had recurrent uh, tonsillitis and bronchitis. Pretty much every March, for quite a number of years, I'd get bronchitis. In year nine, I had pneumonia. In year eleven, I had shingles. Um, I had quite significant depression in my teens and early to mid-20s. I, what else? I had polycystic ovarian syndrome. So, like, my whole body was just totally out of whack. I had super painful, heavy periods. Um, There was just a whole lot of inflammation and, and immune dysregulation going on. And so I guess it was kind of my own... Um, I was always a bit of a greenie and I always had an interest in being active, I would say, rather than health. Like I loved swimming. I loved going out on adventures. I did a lot of hiking and caving and camping and all of that kind of thing. Um, And I always had quite a caring nature. And so when I found out about naturopathy, because I had been thinking of doing nursing or something like that, 
I thought, oh, well, that actually blends the two worlds really nicely. I can bring my greeny stuff in and my caring nature in and little did I know it would be just a massive healing journey for myself because when I was growing up, I didn't really aspire to feel healthier because that was my normal, right? I didn't know I could feel different, which is a place I feel like a lot of people are in these days. So I get really excited when I'm working with people because I'm like, I know you don't know how good you can feel, <laughs> you know. And, yeah. when, and when you start feeling better, you're going to look back and go, oh, my God, I can't believe I felt that crap for that long and just put up with it or didn't know any better. So, um, yeah, when I, when I was 15, my older sister did a, um, a short course in aromatherapy and she had a book and, um, that I would flick through and, and um, when my niece was born, whenever my niece would get sick, I'd look through the book and pick out the oils and I'd use the oils and I just noticed she'd get, um, she'd respond really quickly, really effectively. And I had grown up in a very mainstream kind of medical family, you know, German engineer father, all that kind of stuff. And um, so I hadn't had any exposure to natural medicine at all, really. And when I saw how effective these oils were working on my niece, I just, I really thought there's something to this, you know, I need to look into this further. So that was the other element that really piqued my interest into going down this path. Um, so mm. yeah, straight after school, I um, started studying my degree, my Bachelor of Health Science and Advanced Diploma of Naturopathy and Nutrition and haven't looked back since. And a lot of my healing didn't actually, you know, I started healing. My evolution certainly started while I was studying and I was learning so much, um, not just on a physical level but a more spiritual level as well. But it was when I started seeing patients, that's when I really started learning um, at the tender age of 21 or 22. And, um, yeah, I felt, you know, kind of it was a big jump to be stepping into this role where I was guiding people who were generally more often than not a lot older than me. <laughs> so sometimes I felt like, oh, I don't know whether I'm quite cut out for this or ready for this, but it was just what I needed. And when people would come in with their issues or complaints or concerns, some of those things were things that I was experiencing, but even though I had done the intellectual study, I hadn't thought to complain about it myself or to do something about it myself, to take action myself, because I hadn't actually identified, oh, I don't need to feel this way or I shouldn't be feeling this way. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, we all teach what we need to learn. That's right, that's right. So then these people started coming in having these horrific reactions to gluten and these bowel symptoms and started seeing a lot of people with celiac disease and I was like you know what I think I need to go get myself tested and so (laughs) I did like I had the blood test done I didn't have the endoscopy because once I came off gluten I just felt so remarkably better that it wasn't worth going back on it for six weeks to do a test to tell me whether or not I was celiac it was just very clearly a food that did not agree with me. So, um, yeah, I haven't really looked back since and it's been an evolution since then. And now, you know, at 40 I feel so much better than I did in my teens and I plan to continue that trajectory as well. So, yeah, it's been a big evolution for myself along the way. Thank goodness for that. You definitely don't want to be feeling like you did in your teens. No, that's I, uh, right. I had a similar experience. Well, you know, I was adult. I was uh, premature. I was six weeks premature. I lived in a humidity crib for six weeks, mm. and then um, ad- adopted into this beach-loving family as I was, and became a pro surfer. So yeah. I was very fortunate that I was immersed in nature, and my dad wasn't um, a germaphobe. You know, yeah. I was allowed to, you know, put sand in my mouth and put mud in my mouth and build up my bone. But unfortunately, uh, I had a lactose intolerance that was misdiagnosed as influenza wow and therefore placed on you know in 1970s as if anyone's going to 
suggest that your <laughs> yeah, that your microbiome's out of whack. <laughs> yeah, that you're intolerant to milk. Like, yeah, come on. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it and interesting so, uh, how how much our um, knowledge and perception changes in a relatively short period of time, though? Like as you said, in the seventies. People just wouldn't think that, you know, oh, milk is causing the issue here. And instead, yeah, what was your treatment? By antibiotics. Yeah. After antibiotic, after antibiotic, mm. after antibiotic. Mm. And so that's, that was the, what was leading me to the question that you were just mentioning is just our perspective and our perception and our understanding mm. of nutrition has has shifted so significantly and people may be surprised to know that our original food pyramid that was that came out in the 70s which was designed in Sweden had nothing to do with health and nutrition it was about helping people put foods into their mouths that were cheap and somewhat nutritious yeah yeah um, and, uh, and then how much how much we've relied on that basic uh outdated model mm. to direct our nutrition choices so That's how significant right. are the changes that you're seeing? I mean, you you know, we're, we're learning so much about gut health and brain health and bacteria and, and you know, all these things and cells and the action of parasites. How significant are the changes that you're seeing in maybe the last five years compared to the 15 prior to that? Yeah, there's certainly been a rapid burst of research, especially in the field of the microbiome um, in the last five to 10 years in particular. Um, before that, it just, it wasn't a huge, except for naturopaths, really, I guess, who have always um, gone by the premise of all health or all disease begins in the gut. Um our general mainstream approach was not to look at that. And so it's really since we've had this understanding of the microbiome more so than the genome projects, the human genome project in the early 2000s, the microbiome project is what's really accelerated a lot of our understanding about um, how we function. So, and I think it's something to be really aware of uh, moving forward as well is to remember that we never know everything, we don't know everything and what we know now or what we understand now is the best to our knowledge but may not be true and we mm. need to have that flexibility to be able to adapt and change as well and also we need to bear in mind and this is something that really, you know, both breaks my heart and frustrates me a great deal is that according to um, a letter in the British Medical Journal a few years ago, uh, it takes an average of 17 years for well-established research to become part of general practice. So 17 years? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, so if you that imagine is- there's been... Why does it have to take so long? Yeah, because of dogma and ego and belief and not enough time to research and keep up to date with the research and, yeah, but really I would say a lot of dogma and, and ego and belief mainly. And so <laughs> there's a lot of resistance to change, Um Mm. particularly when you know it's hard in a big system as well like a medical system where there you know we've got medicare and we've got um, structures in place of how we treat certain diseases and to change that even though it seems like we should just be able to go oh we've got new information let's do this differently it means a whole restructure of that system that no longer fits so it can take a long time for that to happen But I find it really heartbreaking because, you know, just imagine in that 17 years there's people who are seeing doctors and practitioners and not getting answers that is having potentially devastating effects on their life and they may in fact lose their life and yet that information is there. It just isn't being brought into practice yet. So I think we really need to encourage um being open-minded and hearted and being willing to adapt and change as new information comes in and I guess to not be righteous because when we think, you know, when we've got, if we've got that righteousness and think we know it all and we're this expert on this topic, 
like that's really when you want to run and find someone else um, because you always want to be in a position of curiosity and not knowing everything and knowing that you don't know everything but you know that pursuit for um, more understanding so yeah that's mm. And the challenge is that a lot of us are just waiting for the silver bullet. We just want to take the one pill that's going to mm. fix our ailment and then go back to living the way we wanted to live. And mm. I found, uh, and when you talk about, you know, learning to be open-minded and trusting in new information, when my husband was diagnosed with cancer, uh, prostate cancer, and we did an enormous amount of research, and what we noticed was there was a whole lot of conflicting knowledge and information mm. being shared. So you don't know which one is right and which one is wrong. And then I took a variety of different nutritional options to the oncologist as suggestions of this, this, you know, this may help um, reduce at least the severity of the cancer or maybe shrink the cancer or whatever. And his response was very righteous. His mm. response was, well, no, that's not scientifically proven. No, that won't work. No, that's a waste of time. And, I, yeah. and so, yeah, go and seek other advice. Um, yeah. Never rely on one person's wisdom and advice. To yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Especially, especially when it's um, something quite significant or invasive, you definitely want multiple opinions for sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, as a as a nutritionist and a naturopath, do you feel like you are sometimes censored or or feel like that that you're not supported by the mainstream? Uh, yes and no. Like. It, I mean, yes, in that, you know, it would be fantastic if, um, you know, practitioner ranges of supplements like the really well-produced ones that are shown to be effective, um, you know, supplements and herbs and things like that were subsidised like pharmaceuticals are or if every year there was a subsidy for everybody to get a microbiome test done, for example, because knowing that and helping to keep people's microbiomes in balance would just totally change our healthcare system um, and probably create a healthcare system rather than a disease care system, actually. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, there are certainly, yeah, there's certainly aspects where there's um, not support, but then at the same time, I think, you know, big change happens from grassroots up. You know, if you try and change things from top down, uh, you're likely to get very exhausted and frustrated. But everybody's got the power in themselves to make choices on a day-to-day -day basis. And so when it comes to working with individuals and communities and groups, I find that there's huge support there, you know, there's big support within the industry, with other practitioners, with um, people who really care about making some positive change because one of the things that I love about working with food other than it's delicious is mm -hmm. that when people, <laughs> when people start becoming aware of their food and what they're eating, they start becoming aware more aware of how that makes them feel. So they start becoming more aware of themselves and how they are, whether it's with food or different environments or different people and situations. It also makes them become more aware of where their food comes from because where your food comes from significantly affects the quality of the food and the taste that you're eating, right? And then when you start looking at where your food comes from, then you start looking at some of the environmental and economical issues around food production. And so it has this butterfly effect of just really increasing awareness on a big level, but starting at home, which is, you know, that old saying um, about change begins at home. And I really feel that that is very true. You know, if we can all focus, even though, you know, this might sound kind of selfish in one light, but I don't think it really is. Um, if we start at home and start actually really caring and looking after ourselves and our earth suits, these vessels, these vehicles we have to carry us through life, I mean, that has a huge impact not only just on us but on all of those around us as well and also on our communities and society. Um, so, you know, we're seeing that with what's going on in the world at the moment to a degree too. But 
I think, yeah, we really need to start with ourselves and our families. And when I say start with our families, like you can't be a preacher either. You've got to live by example. Um, Otherwise, you're likely going to put people off, even though you're so enthusiastic because you're feeling so much better. But you've got to wait Mm. for them to see that and go, wow, what are you doing? (laughs) You know, Um, and be the light. Yeah, that's the most effective way I find to, you know, positively influence others. So, um, yeah, and then ironically, yeah. No, no, go on. So it's just going anything. While we've got all this amazing, you know, modern research and information uh, coming out and available to us in this, you know, incredible age of information, what is quite funny is that a lot of it is really confirming or explaining a lot of ancient wisdoms. So it, I feel like it's all kind of bringing us full circle in many ways to really remember and respect and honour our ancestors and our ancestral ways and the wisdom of being connected with nature because I think one of our downfalls as uh, a race is that we forget that we're part of nature you know we often look out at nature and admire the view or these incredible animals and we just go wow isn't nature amazing look at that sunset it's just incredible and while we're doing that we're totally thinking we're an observer on a bystander but actually we are nature too we are part of that And we need to live really in accordance to the rules or the laws of nature to be able to thrive. It's like, you know, koalas or kangaroos might be better because they're not so nocturnal as koalas. (laughs) You know, kangaroos go to whatever animal it is, they go to bed at their bedtime, right, and they get up when it's time to get up and they eat what's biologically appropriate for them and they not going, oh, I can't eat grass for dinner, I mean breakfast because I'm having that for dinner. You know, this is one thing about breakfast foods and just ditch the whole breakfast food idea. Just think about food, you know, what's going to nourish you. Um, And if we can live more like the animals around us that we're watching and thinking are so amazing, we'd thrive a lot more ourselves. So you talk a lot about ancient wisdoms and medicine and you have a real passion for working with Australian Indigenous people, which is mm. amazing. Um, mm. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with them and what you've learned by living amongst real Indigenous communities from time to time? Yeah, um, it's a huge honour that I have had uh, to be able to do some work with a community up in northeast Arnhem Land on Elko Islands. And I partnered up with uh, Dr Karma Miko in the last couple of years and we ran um, some healthcare programs and retreats up in Darwin and Arnhem Land and yeah it was an incredible challenging experience and incredibly rewarding experience and yeah I certainly learned a great deal and I guess things that I learned from that experience prior to going up there this is one example Uh, let's say, of what I was talking about before, of we always need to be open to new ideas or perspectives, right? Because Mm -hmm. prior to going up there, I had started working, well, I'd started hearing a bit about the carnivore diet, right? And I eat a paleo diet, but it's mostly plants, it's mostly veggies, and I have really well-sourced animal products and plenty of fat. Anyway, I heard about the carnivore diet and at first I was like, that can't be right, you know, like that's just mm-hmm. that's just crazy talk. Um, but I started doing some more research about it and I was like, well, well, actually that could make sense, especially when we're talking about restoring a gut microbiome that's completely um, out of balance. And there, there were um, really impressive reports of people with severe autoimmune diseases and all sorts of chronic inflammatory diseases who were just benefiting a great deal and from being on a carnivore diet. So this is like literally at its basic level, it's eating um, beef and salt and water and that's it. And so um, then I had actually started seeing someone who was um, doing a carnivore diet 
And then I started working and he, he was actually really thriving off it. And then I started working with a few people who were really keen to trial it and we were doing it and they were getting really impressive results. And I just really had to shift my perspective from coming from this eat foods, not too much, mostly plants, paleo perspective to hmm, maybe sometimes going carnivore is appropriate. Anyway, so my mind was opening to that idea and I was really seeing that there's a time and a place for eating like that as well for some people some of the time. And then when I went up and spent time in Arnhem Land, that really came home to me a lot because we would go hunting, for example, and gathering. And the amount of effort and energy expenditure it took to be able to eat plant foods was remarkable. Like if you're going to dig for a yam, it was a group effort in the blazing heat. It was so hot. There were a good, I don't know, more than half a dozen people like digging for this yam that wouldn't even have fed one person. Do you know what I mean? Like it was, there was Mm. this very small nutritional return for all of this effort that was going in. And then they'd make this cycad nut damper. Now cycad nuts, if you eat them, um, as they are, they're super poisonous and you'll be vomiting with, you know, very soon after ingesting them. And so they have to go through this really laborious process of um, shelling the nuts and then soaking them in a stream for like three weeks in running water before processing them to make damper out of it, you know. So there's a lot of effort that has to go into eating a lot of plant foods because plants unlike animals they don't have teeth or claws or legs that they can run away with they're kind of you know just sitting ducks in a way so they have these other mechanisms to protect themselves from predators and that's these compounds in them which are potentially poisonous on the other hand yeah on the other hand when you go hunting for an animal once that animal is dead it's safe to eat generally speaking right unless you're you know maybe in the amazon and got some weird frog or something but generally speaking once you've got your animal it's it's really safe and highly nutritious uh, very nutrient dense lots of good fats in there an incredible source of vitamins and minerals more so than any plant food and it sustains you for longer so it made so much more sense to me as well spending that time up there going you know, there would be periods if you were just living on the land where you would only be eating animal products if you were, you know, in this really natural environment. So that really brought home the whole, okay, there's a, I can see the evolutionary kind of perspective of uh, a carnivore diet, basically. And then I also have another friend who does a lot of Mm. hunting and living out on the land and he went over to film a show overseas and part of the interview process, it was a survival show, and part of the interview process was, okay, you know, if you can't find food or if you're struggling to find food, are you going to focus on um, hunting or gathering plant foods? And he said, yeah, I'm going to focus on hunting. And that's the answer they were looking for because they also know, especially if you're in an environment that you don't know the plants very well around you, you're at high risk of of poisoning yourself, you know. So all these pieces, yeah, yeah, that's right. When you think about it, you're like, oh, yeah, that's so true. You're not just going to go out to your garden and pick off any leaf, you know. So, um, Mm. yeah, that was just a really fascinating, I guess, 18 months of revelation (laughs) for me in Uh terms of, okay, so, yeah, there's a time and a place for eating this way. Mm. And instinct and intuition play a really important role in our lives. But Mm. also I I believe intuitively we know what's good for us if we just stop and listen to our bodies listen to or feel the response from what we've just put in our mouths and ingested mm. and, and and even applied to our skin you know things yeah. like that so I I totally agree with that and I'd also say that for 
that can be really tricky too if you're in a fog or if you are overridden with addictions or your physiology is so out of whack then those messages can be a bit um they're interfered with it's like the the signals Mm. out on the tv or something you're not getting a clear picture or a clear feeling and I remember when I was um probably about 20 doing some work experience in a clinic and there's a clinic manager in there who was quite sensitive and was really in tune with what foods did and didn't suit her or supplements and things like that to the point, you know, she'd pick it up and be like, oh, no, put that back down. Or she'd go, oh, yeah, that's for me. And I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. That's just ridiculous. And then (laughs) as it turns out, like that's so true, you know. I mean, I don't even need to pick up a food or touch a food. I can think about it or look at it and I will get this sense of, closure like I feel like my cells are closing down or my posture kind of closes a bit or this sense of opening Mm. like this yes like oh yeah that's what my body wants right now you know but that happened after I started to clear the fog that I was in you know as I started to heal my gut um, as I could tune into that intuition as well Um, so yeah the healthier we become or we start to become the more easily we can start to recognize that feedback um and then Mm -hmm. it gets to a point where yeah you don't need to think about it it's just part of your way of being um and the only other well maybe not the only other thing but the main other thing that I find can interfere with that is our epidemic of busyness right because busyness means that we are distracted from ourselves So it means that the messages might be there and yelling out loud and clear, but we're not listening because we're focusing on 62 other things and running around like a headless chook. So um, quiet time, quiet time is really important. You know, there's that saying, he who uh, fails to go within goes without. So we really need to have that quiet time to spend time Um, doing nothing sitting on the couch and looking at a tree outside or something like that or doing some meditation or some journaling or some doodling but even those things are too much doing sometimes it's amazing how hard Mm. it can be to just sit and watch a tree I invite everybody to try that out (laughs) it's amazing one of um Absolutely. One of the one of our favourite holidays ever, Kirk and I jumped in a four-wheel drive and we drove from Broome to Darwin and just camped along oh. the Gibb River Road. Oh. And uh, every night we sat and watched nature's television, which was oh. a bonfire. And uh, it's just a beautiful way to stop and recenter and reconnect and immerse yourself in nature and create that clarity and that space and just start listening and tuning in and zoning out. It was such a beautiful opportunity to really disconnect from the busyness and reconnect with my true self. So, yeah, 100%. yeah, I recommend immersing yourselves in nature to experience yeah. that. Oh, nature helps. Um, one of my absolutely, and one of my other favorite comment, uh, favorite uh, quotes is uh, the body whispers before it screams. Mm, absolutely, it does. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, a lot of the time, and, you know, I'd say pretty much everybody is um, susceptible to this, is we often don't listen to the whispers and we wait till there's a scream. But, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the more you can listen to the whispers, the more that will guide you into the direction that you're actually wanting to go, even if at the time it doesn't feel like it because humans in general you know, we're not that great at change. Before we make a change, we tend to make out that it's Mount Everest, we've got to climb and it's going to be really hard. And I don't think I can do that, or I can't do that, or I don't want to do that, because there's some kind of resistance there. But then we get to the Mm. crisis point where we're like, okay, well, I've got to do it now. Otherwise, you know, XYZ will happen. And we do it. And we're like, ah, and we look back and we're like, oh, it was an anthill that, you know, that wasn't so bad. So Yeah, change is really hard, which is often why it does take a scream or a crisis to create change, um, unfortunately. But the more we can learn to act on the whispers, the better off we are, yeah. And it's easier to do as an individual, but what about those parents out there that are listening that have kids and kids with ailments? And, you know, I've got some friends who have got eight-year-olds who have 
who suffer from severe migraines, for example. Mm. Yeah. How do we how do we help them help their kids? Yeah, for sure. Well, I think um, there's a few ways. One is, I think remember that you know pain is a teacher, or pain is your body's messenger system. It's a language, right? Your body doesn't have words, so it's got to speak to you in some other form, and that will either be you know, pain or rashes or behavioral issues, um, you know, you name it. And so rather than going, oh, this is happening, it's an opportunity for us to go, okay, what is this body trying to tell me? What's this soul trying to tell me right now? What is needed, you know? And that's where we kind of get our detective hats on and look at the whole person, you know, what's... um, what are their relationships like? What is their food like? How are they eating? What's their sleep like? Um, uh, how much time are they spending on screens? Do they have blue blocker glasses at least to mitigate some of the blue light exposure? Um, yeah, are they having nourishing food? How much lollies or junk food is in their diet? How much gluten is in their diet? Like nobody needs gluten. Not everybody reacts to it, but I'd say more people have a reaction to it than don't these days because of the way that it is grown and harvested and stored and all the glyphosate that is uh, sprayed on it at about four different stages throughout that process, um, which disrupts our microbiome and then that affects our gut brain and immune connection. So I haven't met anybody with migraines, for example, who doesn't have a leaky gut. So there's always some gut Mm. issues going on, either constipation, diarrhea, irritable bowel things, uh, tummy pains, Sometimes leaky gut doesn't necessarily respond with uh, gut symptoms, so that's where you have to look a little bit uh, deeper. But mm-hmm. typically speaking, like if you look at the, the gut barrier, so when we're talking about leaky gut, it means that the permeability of the gut wall is increased and bigger molecules are able to get through into the bloodstream than otherwise would normally be able to. And then we have this other barrier in the body called the blood-brain barrier. Now, the blood-brain barrier and the gut barrier are actually regulated by many of the same mechanisms, which is why if you've got a leaky gut, you've got a leaky brain, and you're going to be way more prone to get migraines. And there's a big link between gluten and migraines as well. So that's just one example, though. There are other things, but that's one example. Right. Okay. So there's basically no one-size-fits-all policy. No, there's no one. Yeah, and I think you know you don't want to treat the disease; you want to treat the person. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Get all all the things that may contribute to this. Not just diet. Yeah, yeah. Which is why you know people will ask me, "Oh, I've got this going on. What do I do?" And it's like, well, there's no black and white answer. You know, I can't just go, "Bam, it's this," because there's you know typically. There could be, you know, 16 things that are contributing to that and some are bigger and some are smaller. And it's kind of the um, one one analogy I use with that is uh, one boat with many anchors, which is um, the picture. If you imagine a boat, all the anchors are in the water and you're like, right, we want to take off now, set sail. And you just pick up one anchor and you put the, your foot on the accelerator and you don't move anywhere and you go, oh, well, that anchor wasn't doing anything because we're not moving, so I'll throw that one back in. I'll get the next anchor out, you know. Of course, you're not going to go until you lift all those anchors up. And that is very much uh, the situation with dealing with a lot of our especially chronic health conditions, we need to look at what are all those anchors and how can we lift them up in a way that's really manageable and sustainable and in no way overwhelming and very practical and doable So, and empowering. It's really important that it's an empowering process because you want to enjoy it. It's really important to enjoy it. And I think, you know, a lot of the time people can get quite weighted down and heavy about health whereas I um, as you said in the intro I'm really passionate about people finding the joy in being well because we we do want to enjoy it we want to go on this adventure you want to have curiosity and as you start to feel better you require less motivation because you get more inspiration and inspiration gives you energy you know motivation 
requires that commitment to discipline and to make a change and to take a step. But once you do that and you reap some of the reward, that's when you get the inspiration. You're like, oh, I feel so much better. Okay, what else is possible? What else can I do? You know, and you start going on um, a true adventure and you learn more about yourself and your world and all sorts of things that you just never would have thought you'd be learning about just because you had hay fever or something you know yeah um yeah I just find it's really cool and you don't and you want to enjoy it too because uh you do want it to be sustainable and you don't want to go I'm going to eat healthy and do this for six weeks and then you know that's it I'm going back to my Tim Tams or whatever if you go back to old habits you're going to get old problems right there's is there's a formula there things don't happen for no reason so um yeah we want to look at it being sustainable and enjoyable well you may not be able to answer this question because we recognize that there is no one size fits all way to go about it but if there were three basic things people could do to bring more joy or improve their health and well-being what would they be yeah awesome so one would be food I really do think food is foundational because if you think about it every single structure in your body every cell every bone or your skin your brain cells every hormone and we know how hormones can make us feel good or bad right every hormone every neurotransmitter um, every enzyme, every digestive acid, all of it is made up out of the nutrients that we eat through our food, okay? So if we are not getting those basic building blocks in through our food, then we're going to have dysfunction occur. And if we have that dysfunction in a way where it affects our energy levels or our mood or our cognitive function, those three things in particular or pain levels, like they all have massive impacts on our quality and enjoyment of life and also in our ability to be able to hear that inner voice, that inner wisdom, that intuition, right? So the mm-hmm. the better, the cleaner, more nourishing and I would say more delicious as well our food is, the better. So that's definitely one cornerstone. The other one I would say is getting out in nature, you know, ideally Mm. a bit of quiet time in nature and and playtime in nature. So be active. The body was made to move and typically we don't move enough these days, but if we can move and be in nature while we do that, that means I can put those two things in the one category. (laughs) So And quiet time, as we mentioned, is equally important. I often say to people when they ask me what my goals are, I say it's to get bored because, you know, how often do we get the opportunity to be bored these days? There's always so much stimulation around us. And Mm. those times of boredom, they're actually really powerful creative moments. That's when our imagination comes into play. That's when we become these creative masters. So I'm all for boredom, especially for kids, as much as they hate it. um, I'm all for boredom and adults need it just as much too. And just as Mm -hmm. kids need boredom, adults need play. We forget that, um, you know, as we grow old, we tend to get a bit too serious Um, and stop playing and moving so much and one of my favorite quotes is we don't stop playing because we grow old we grow old because we stop playing so I think it's really important yeah to include play so I'm putting that all in one category and then third would be to find what it is that gives you joy that is independent of any other human And the reason for that is that's going to get you more connected with yourself, basically. And the more connected you are with yourself, the more you're going to make decisions and choices and carry out actions that are really aligned for you and you're going to sabotage yourself a lot less and you're going to do things that are actually going to build your sense of worth and esteem and Uh, vulnerability and your connection to others and so yeah find your joy get out in nature and eat good food they'd be my three things and they are very 
a useful and sound sage advice, I would say, <laughs> um, and very simple, something that every single one of us can That's at least right. implement one of those things into our lives today. That's right, absolutely. Um, so no time, no time like the present. Yeah, so, and one, um, I'd just say on that, sorry, Lane, that, you know, with health as well, we l- really like to, as humans, make things quite complicated. Um but when it comes down to it, it can be super simple, just like those uh, three things that we were just speaking about. So keep it simple, one step at a time, um, yeah, and make it fun. Sounds good to me. Make it real fun. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, in, I mean, there's still so much we can cover off and speak about, like your books and all of the work that you're doing. But um, we've been on this call for over an hour now and I'd really like to uh, just finish off by asking you one more question, if that's mm. okay. Yeah, absolutely. You ready? I'm ready. I think it's I'm ready. Deep. <laughs> really <Yeah>. deep. <laughs> <laughs> me with it. If you had the opportunity to go back in time, what advice would you give your 18-year-old self? Mm, good question. Um, it's funny, isn't it, because... There's things that I might want to say to my 18-year-old self that I don't know whether I would be ready to hear or open to hearing or willing to believe. But I guess Mm. one of the things that I would say is to embrace your shadows and explore your shadows and um, have people around you that support you in doing that because from my experience diving into our shadows and what I mean about our shadows is those places where we tend to hold a lot of judgment about ourselves Um, we hold a lot of shame and that ends up reflecting on as uh, or coming out as we end up being really judgmental on others or closed or really just not connecting to people in the way that we long to. Um, And when you do start to do that work of going to those dark and sometimes scary places within ourselves, my experience is, is that it sounds cliche, but that's where the most light and joy and laughter is found. And it's amazing how many barriers we put up to going there where on the other side is just, you know, fabulous rainbows and parties. So, and and with that as well, it enables you to drop a lot of shame. It's a very liberating place to be. And I think if we all did that, we'd all have a lot more compassion for each other and each other's experiences of going through, you know, everybody's got these shadows, right? And if we could understand that, we'd have a much more mm. compassionate society. So that's what I'd say. Yes, we do have an empathy de- deficit in this yeah. world and yeah. uh, that is beautiful advice to uh, reassure people that they're not alone in their struggles. No. And the, no. the more that we share, the more that we share what we're going through, the more it gives others permission to Absolutely. actually break free of it. Yeah. Themselves from it. That's right. Otherwise you just stay trapped in it and that's no fun for anybody. <laughs> no. Not at all. Well, I must admit this has been an extremely insightful and fun interview with you, Helen. I thank you so much for your time and your your knowledge and your expertise and for sharing so generously with us and the audience today. If anyone wants to know more information, they can go to helenpatterin.com. Or right. is it Padarin? Patterin, Patterin, yeah. Patterin. Oh, yeah. good. I got it right the first time. <laughs> HelenPatterin.com. There's, uh, there's, yeah, there's... Um, an enormous amount of of resources there on your website. But um, thank you so much for shining the light on health and wellness and for, uh, yeah, like I said, sharing so generously with us today. It's been a a really insightful and educational (laughs) opportunity for me especially. Awesome. It's my pleasure, Mm -hmm. Lane, and a real, Um, real pleasure to chat with you. What an incredible podcast. Each week, Lane Beachley, seven times world surfing champion, is going to bring a new podcast to you, getting inside the mind of champions and finding out exactly what makes them tick. Exclusively brought to you by Inner Origin, your ultimate online wellness marketplace.